in perfect timing, this was when the strings came in, and it was like, oh my goodness, this is a moment. <laughs> they, they do move in herds, sort of thing. <laughs> She's supposed to be, like, here on a safety tour of a new resort, which is supposed to open quite soon, and she sees this horrifying possibility for Jules to die, and just mutters something about it to Alan under her breath, instead of going... <laughs> Do you realise how stupid you are? Save it for the TripAdvisor review at the end. Oh, can you imagine? <laughs> One star. <laughs> Pros, beautiful ferns. Cons, deadly ferns. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Shark Liver Oil. Uh, this is a podcast that uh, reads through books and gives you uh, a bit of an extra analysis and a few thoughts, a fair bit of nonsense as well about what's going on <laughs> between the pages. Uh, I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. I'm glad you added that bit about the nonsense there. I was a bit worried for a second. I thought you might be dignifying us a bit too much. Analysis. (laughs) Shit talked, I think, might be the best way of saying what we do. Yeah. So we've just come off a long one of doing uh, one of the last Game of Thrones books, Feast for Crows. And now we're diving into a new book. And this is is one of my favourite books of all time. And it's Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. (laughs) that was really good that's how excited i am matt that i've been practicing i've been practicing my indeterminate dinosaur i haven't been practicing but it's still fucking awesome yeah yeah brilliant love it so um, you can access this in two ways you you will have done one of two ways either on our main shark live royal podcast where we do a range of different books uh, all through the year and also we're starting up a special podcast um called jurassic shark which is, you'll see what we've done there. Yeah, hey! hey. Zing! <laughs> yeah, but this is the one to subscribe to if you just want to get the Jurassic Park material. We'll be looking at, over the course of a fair amount of time, we're going to go through the two Michael Crichton books, and we're also going to take a look at the films, which are very fairly dramatically in quality. <laughs> <laughs> I see, can I tell you, I've recently watched Jurassic World for the third time, not by choice. <laughs> I am looking forward to getting there, but I am also quite looking forward to going through the whole arc of the series yeah. and sort of sort of seeing the heights it started at. Yeah, JP3 is going to be a, a tough listen. Uh, buckle oh, up for oh, that. Oh, um, oh. But anyway, <laughs> this is, uh, is we started obviously with, with Worried I'll Be Gam, and this is uh, Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. Like, as I said, this is one of my favourite books. This is the first book that I ever, re- first like, book written for adults that I ever read. I think I read was it, it really? about 10. Yeah. I think my mum and dad Brilliant. let me get it because they weren't really sure that I'd read it. It was just to keep me quiet. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> little did they know. Little did they know they were lighting the fuse that would eventually lead to shark liver oil. Yeah. Well, it's because I'd just seen the, the film, the Jurassic Park original film. I was only about, I was about 10 when it came out. And, um, and I went for a, one of my friend's birthday parties. And my mum said, right, you can go and watch this film, but... Matthew, if there you know if there are scary parts, you can put your hands over your eyes. And I was like, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, that's fantastic advice. I wasn't allowed to go and see the first Jurassic Park movie, and do you know why? Do you know why it was? No. Steven Spielberg himself gave an interview in which he said, "I would not let my eight-year-old daughter watch this." <laughs> oh, no. So my dad was like, "Well, you're right. You can't watch it." <laughs> what? Wait, j- j- the, the director himself, whilst making magic for my entire generation, screwed me specifically. 
Still and nonetheless, I've managed to forgive him and recognise that it's a complete masterpiece, as is the book. Yeah. Well, the, the cool thing about um, Jurassic Park, the book, is it's it's obviously very similar in many ways to the film, uh, which the film's obviously based on, but also very different. And um, it feels like, feels to me, always feels to me like the special extended director's cut sort of <laughs> unlimited budget edition of Jurassic Park. I think that says a lot about the power of your imaginative brain, Matt, actually. Yeah. Like, most people would be like, oh, it's rubbish, put it on the screen. You're like, excellent, more special effects in the book. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Um, but anyway, so Jurassic Park. We, we, it's about time that we, uh, we dive straight into it then. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, we, we'll do a few comparisons with sort of differences with the film as we go as well. Um, but this is going to be predominantly about the book. So what we do is break the book down into a number of sections. With Jurassic Park, we're doing five, and then every week we tell you how far to read to, and that's the bit that we cover this week. This week, we're going from the start up to a uh, chapter called When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth. If you're reading along with us, read as far as there and no further. So we start off with um, pretty much like an essay on... Uh, it's just like a short... Michael Crichton does this quite a lot, doesn't he? Because his, his books are often... Um, Obviously, it's a story, but there's also a bit of sort of education in it as well, um, which is always quite quite interesting. And he se- he tends to mix fiction with fact a lot as well. So this is an essay about genetic yeah. engineering, and it's quite yeah. hard to tell <laughs> where the fact ends <laughs> or the fiction well, begins. Also, because you want to be along for this ride, right? Like, there's yeah. a couple he did later in his career. Actually, have you ever read a book called um, uh, Next? I oh, know State of Fear. Right. State of Fear was one of the last ones he ever wrote, and it's it's cobblers it's like demonstrable scientific complete nonsense right. uh, climate change isn't really real it's not really happening and it's all cooked up by some massive conspiracy of people and stuff yeah. and um and it was really interesting because it kind of made me come back to this and be like can i believe this and of course the moment i read the first word i'm like i don't care i don't care it's real it's real <laughs> dinosaurs are real i don't care <laughs> yeah um, so this the InGen incident. It's called this uh, first chapter. It talks about sort of how genetic engineering has come on at such a pace in recent years. It's all set in the sort of late eighties, early nineties. This um, it's a new field, and because of that, there's very low regulations around it at the moment. And it mentions this disaster on a remote island off the coast of Costa Rica. So it's sort of setting the scene for a almost like a little, little bit mysterious. What's going on here? You know. Yeah, and it's only heightened by the fact that he does this sort of re- like journalistic reporting sort of style. Um, I read apparently uh, one of his first editors told him that his first book that he should write it like a report in the New York Times, but still have this really really like fantastical storyline. And I kind of love that he cleaves so closely to that because it makes it feel, particularly if you read it when you're a kid like we both did, it makes yeah. it feel really grown up, but also yeah. there are dinosaurs eating people. So, yeah. spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> now, I'll be honest, okay, confession to make, I did say that I read this when I was little originally. Um, I read the first few pages, The Indian Incident, and it was this essay on genetic engineering, and I thought, oh, I can't really be arsed with this. And then I flick forward to like the first part where someone got eaten and I was like yeah it, it, does, so it does get good and then I flicked back to pretty much where they all arrive on the island and just read from there so was, <laughs> you missed all of the setup yeah. you I are the audience that Hollywood it. has in mind you realise that boring boring blah 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 explosions please explosions now 
Well, it was 10, but I was like, yeah, so I looked, it was like, some woman in a hospital, nah, some bloke on a beach, nah, 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 nah. something about, oh yeah, they're doing the dig bit, yeah, it was so boring, though. ah, yes, they've arrived on the island. <laughs> Somebody's about to get chomped, yeah. bring it on. So this is, um, this was quite, when I read, obviously came back to reread it when I was older, it was quite interesting just reading this part of Jurassic Park that I'd never ever read before, which is this bit. Um, but yeah, so we move on to the bite of the raptor. And this is, uh, we meet this doctor called Bobby Carter, uh, who's a doctor in Costa Rica. And she's uh, in this hospital when this InGen, which is this company that does genetic engineering, helicopter arrives uh, carrying this injured construction worker. Um, and this guy called Ed Regis, who's the, uh, the, the official from the park, says that this guy's had a construction accident. And they... As, as the doctor's examining this 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 lad who's been injured, she can see all this evidence which suggests it's it's not a construction accident. There's no sort of soil like a like pushed into the wounds and things like that. And these these slashes and injuries don't quite look right. And she can find traces of saliva. And I think the key thing is there's these marks on the hands which are defense wounds. So it's obvious this guy's been attacked. Um, yeah. This is a. Yeah, this it suddenly gets very, very real, doesn't it, this? Yeah, it does. And because this came out when it came out, and because obviously it was this entertainment phenomenon and I was too small to read it when it first came out, I was kind of wondering what it would be like to read Jurassic Park if you didn't know what it was about. Yeah. Like, if you'd just been like, I hear this crying writes fairly good techno thrillers, I'm going to buy that in hardback. Yeah. Like two years before the movie or whatever. And then, like, because he does a really good slow burn here, doesn't he? Like, not one, but two setup scenes. Yeah. Where there's, like, dinosaurs are somehow out and about, and this is all very frightening. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I just, I like, I wish that I'd have been able to read this cold, because yeah. it must have been so cool. Yeah. It must be, must have, always must be so hard to come to Jurassic Park colder because A, the title, and B, yeah. I'm sure you, it'd be very hard to find a copy of this book that doesn't have a massive fucking dinosaur in the front. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I mean, you might know the concept, but you still don't quite know what's going to happen. Yeah, Whereas yeah, yeah. every time I read this scene, I'm like, that was a raptor. Raptors yeah. are badass. <laughs> I'm frightened of raptors. This is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, um,. The, uh, the 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 construction worker as he's dying whispers this word which is raptor, and um, it may, they they sort of look it up later on to try and work out what it was on about, and raptor's got this uh, connotation in Costa Rica apparently um, with this uh, this sort of creature that steal a spirit that steals children, um, yeah. and and also like the English definition of it is bird of prey. Um, so yeah. yeah you're right there's an element of mystery to this at the moment even though we all sort of know where it's going yeah um, that's broken up but the n- next bit is uh, there are these series of mathematical drawings throughout and it's a sort of developing concept by this character called Ian Malcolm and this is the first iteration the next page it's basically mm. chaos theory and it explains it as you go and it's it's so it's so strange, isn't it? Because when you first come to it, you have no idea what on earth is going on. And even at the end, yeah. it's sort of it's still not particularly clear. But uh, yeah. it it is pretty. What did you make of this 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 weird like first, second, third, fourth iterations? Oh, I bloody loved it. 
because there's something so cool. I mean, admittedly, I'm a complete geek for this stuff as well. I don't, I'm not good at maths in the slightest bit, but mm. just its power as a storytelling device for kind of explaining things which, in a in an earlier era, would have just been shit goes down because shit goes down because this is a thriller and shit will go down. That's where shit goes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but this is Michael Crichton layering over it this in kind of this purposefully dispassionate voice of maths and science and so on and kind of suggesting that the new world that we're all kind of that people were getting their heads around in the 80s and still are now I think Mm. of like massive technological advance still hid within it the potential for unpredictable drama Mm. is actually really exciting and it's particularly the juxtaposition between you, you just hear a mathematician kind of going and uh, in the third iteration, you'll see <laughs> the elements move into the... And it's really boring. But then it turns out that what that means in practice is that a T-Rex is going to eat your face. And yeah. that's quite compelling. Yeah. So, I mean, at the mo- we'll, we'll, we'll discuss this sort of chaos theory and Ian Malcolm more as we go along. But at the moment, you, your first impression is basically it's a squiggle on a page and some sort of cryptic writing beneath it analyzing yeah, it. <laughs> but it draws you in doesn't it oh, it's yeah. maths and it draws you in yeah. where was Ian Malcolm when I was doing A-level that's my question <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> by the way did you enjoy my Ian Malcolm voice there do you reckon we should uh, we should uh, render all Ian Malcolm's words not in that kind of cool uh, Jeff Goldblum voice but in a kind of very slow nasal <laughs> monotone <laughs> yeah, because that's completely the opposite of the char- what the character actually is, isn't it? Is that- yeah, <laughs> I'd love it though if he was a complete. I mean, we'll come to him obviously, but if he yeah. was a complete rock star, um, <laughs> but still had the sort of stereotypical nasal, uninteresting, whiny drone, yeah, that would be completely amazing. That that'd actually really work these days, though, wouldn't it? Because you like you have like sort of really cool geek chic, like geek really, chic. Yeah, it could be like that. <laughs> <laughs> You were all so busy wondering if you could, you didn't stop to think whether you should. <laughs> yeah. Oh, brilliant. Anyway. Um, Sorry. We, we, we move on to the, the next, you like you say, setup scene, I suppose. This next chapter is called Almost Paradise. It's uh, there's this bloke taking his family on a family holiday. Uh, they're searching for a deserted beach to sort of... Uh, to really take the holiday to the next level, uh, I like this very um, little little aside. Uh, this bloke's uh, gone to Costa Rica because his wife was saying how beautiful the beaches are and stuff. And once they arrived, it turned out his wife already booked herself into a plastic surgery clinic. <laughs> it was like a big cover story for that. <laughs> that was I. And again, I think Crichton is actually really good at this. These little character moments that sketch people really well. Even yeah. though you know this is a prologue, we're not going to meet these people again. Yeah, but you yeah. still do have a sense of their their relationship and their interaction. You know. Yeah, definitely. It's very very economical, isn't it? Very economical storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they're on the way to this this deserted beach, and I love this bit. Um, they say um, that this beach is known to have a variety of wildlife on it. And you're in that thinking, oh yeah, it does. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) So, um, so they, they arrive on the beach, the little girl, Tina runs off, um, and comes into contact with some of this wide variety of wildlife. When this, uh, chicken sized lizard ends up coming out of the jungle. And oh, she's... it's not a lizard, Matt, though, is it? Hey, it's not well... a lizard. 
Yeah, so she tries to feed it and it jumps on her hand and then she starts screaming as like from the here from the other side of the beach. Yeah. Um, this is quite interesting because this scene isn't in Jurassic Park the film, but it made it into the second film, didn't it? The sort of yeah. the, the, the the films do th- have done that actually. Even Ju- Jurassic World reaches all the way back into Jurassic Park and steals a couple of scenes that they just yeah. didn't have time to put in. Well, and that's a sign of a really good novel, isn't it? And actually, the difference between a really good thriller novel and a really good thriller film, because the the novel kind of needs to have more stuff in it and takes a higher a higher degree of plot invention, I think, than a screenplay, which is like, right, you've got ninety minutes, impress me. Yeah, it's just a completely different vibe. And so the the novel is incredibly rich in setups. And actually, I think this is true of the Lost World as well. That the novel, mm-hmm. the Lost World, which was so much better than the the, the Lost World, the film. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, just I just I I do like I say at some points in his career, Michael Crichton was off the fucking wall. But in this book, he was just on it. It's just watching somebody at the very peak of their game. Yeah, and that's something Jurassic Park the film does quite well. Actually, they didn't just try and <clears throat> sort of like Peter Jackson and the Hobbit, they didn't just try and film the book, just put it all in. It's just yeah. pick and choose what's going to work, and then yeah. you maybe use the rest at a later date if you know if it comes to yeah. that. Yeah, and actually, it's a sign of great discipline, I think, because they are two completely different art forms, um, mm. and they need two completely different approaches. And that was, I mean, I you know we talked about this before, but that was definitely for me one of the big weaknesses of the Hobbit as a film series was you know it just they put everything on screen and then added more stuff instead of taking it out and making it streamlined and the rest yeah of it. yeah okay well the next chapter is called ooh, uh punta arenas all right punta arenas i think punta arenas and um yeah. this is this describes a sort of frantic drive to the hospital with this uh of the, of the dad while well, his daughter's got this uh, swelling arm and neck because uh, he's obviously from the bite of this animal mm. um, and it turns out this beach is particularly deserted and no one can work out what this, this animal is um, mm. when they're analysing the bites and things like that they, 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 they classify it as a basilisk lizard but you can tell that the people working on it are very unsure about it yeah, 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 and this is again. This is another thing that's really well played because we know it's dinosaurs. Like you say, there's a dinosaur on the front cover of the thing, um, but everybody else is acting in a way which they absolutely would if there was a secret source of dinosaurs somewhere in the world and they started to get out. Of course, yeah. everybody would be like, "Nah, it's a weird lizard, some sort of strange. It's not a dinosaur, and it obviously not a dinosaur." So. Um, so lizards, yeah, no problem. And what that so it's really realistic, and it's such tension that comes from it because you're like, it's dinosaurs. You don't even know that it's dinosaurs, and I'm about to read a book full of dinosaurs. <laughs> it just like what it does to the reader is fantastic because it makes you like it. You know more than the characters, so you enjoy that, and it brings tension, so you enjoy that, and it makes you think about the fact that you're about to see a load of dinosaurs, and you really enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, the next chapter is the beach, and uh, this guy called Gutierrez, who's uh, been investigating, trying to work out what this bite is, um, he visits the, uh, the beach uh, to see if he can see one of these animals for himself. He's also found out that there have been a, a number of other lizard bites um, up along this coast recently, which haven't been connected together yet. Um, mm. And he gets lucky, just as he's leaving, 
um, he comes across this howler monkey, which is is eating one of these lizards. It's got like half of it in its jaws. So he, he manages to sort of he fight, fires a t- tranquilizer dart at it, and it runs off, and he can he can take the little corpse back. Then, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he actually he actually sends this on to New York for analysis. Mm. So you, you sort of this first few chapters is people slowly getting closer to working out what's happened here, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. And it's even more actually. This is even more well set up because the 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 prologue tells you that you know what's going to happen. You know that nobody's going to find out that these are actually dinosaurs. Yeah. You know, it stays in this in this you know tense, ironic place. Yeah. Uh, so we move on to a chapter called New York, and uh, <laughs> I love this. There's a <laughs> this this lizard arrives, and one of the the technician working on it. Um, she, just, she just goes, oh, very nice. And she reads out like the label, and it's partially masticated fragments of unidentified Costa Rican lizard. And she's like, <laughs> this one's all yours, Dr. Stone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had me at partially masticated. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they, they analyze, the, they analyze this, uh, this corpse. But all they're really looking for is to see what they're worried about is whether there is any poison in the sort of in the saliva and in the venom, um, because they're worried about some kind of outbreak. And once they assess that there's no sort of danger posed from it, it's sort of put on the back burner and yeah. um, and left there. Um, oh, the hubris of science, Matt. Yeah, but hubris. We do... <laughs> they could have discovered dinosaurs. Yeah. yeah. The, the next little bit of this, it jumps back to Costa Rica in this chapter, and there's a midwife. Um, who is working there and it's this there's just it suddenly gets extremely horrific because she hears this yeah. this uh this chirping coming from one of the baby's rooms she opens the door and there are three of these lizards around this crib and they've killed and eaten basically the face of one of these babies i mean this comes Jeez. absolutely out of nowhere doesn't it it does as if yeah you know lest lest we sit here having quite quite too much fun with mm. the idea of dinosaurs um you know, reminding reminding us that real real humans will die and that real humans matter and that mm. you should be excited about the humans surviving. Mm. Um, so as a narrative technique, it's very effective, but you're right, he doesn't pull any punches. Yeah, and this is the moment where you think, oh, right, this is, where, this is the sort of light in the touch paper here. There's going to be a big investigation. It's going to all come out. So we get to the shape of the data and uh, the midwife decides just to, quietly cover it up and say it's just asphyxiation and man it actually successfully covers it up which is quite amazing quite how they took one look at the body and thought yeah probably just uh you know it's just a typical case of cotton death this isn't it the fact that its face has been eaten off yeah nothing to do with it no 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 don't worry about it uh happens all the time in cases of cot death in films (laughs) yeah horror films right yeah (laughs) Uh, so uh, we, we continue in the shape of the data. We continue to move along this uh, process, though, of trying to work out what exactly going on here. Um, the, the, the further analyze this corpse, uh, the little um, little lizard, and they find two interesting things here. One, um, the the venom which they've discovered, which isn't particularly dangerous, but it, apparently it's a really primitive form of of cobra venom, and by primitive, like millions of years old. Um, yeah. And also, they discover this uh, some some bits of the genetic code, which 
which is the hallmarks of genetic engineering, and they just assume that it must be some kind of contaminant that's got in there because uh, yeah. it wouldn't make any sense otherwise. But again, it's yeah. these little clues just pointing towards what was highlighted in the first chapter about this genetic engineering possibly getting out of hand. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was interesting. And also, this lab technician wanders in and sees the picture which the little kid drew of the animal and says, oh, yeah, that's a dinosaur. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I, do, I do love the complete, like, because she doesn't do it on the basis of, you know, the kind of scientist who's like, I'm telling you people, it's a dinosaur. Yeah. She's just like, oh, this is a nice dinosaur picture. It's yeah. Not a dinosaur. <laughs> Come off it. Of course it's a dinosaur. My kid draws them all the time. You know. <laughs> yeah. So they, they decide to send it off to some more, more analysis. They're beginning to think, you know, maybe it's a... Uh, it's a rediscovered species or something that's been yeah. around for ages. So it could be something completely different. So that's the next yeah. stage. You've got to say at this point, haven't you, what have we had five scenes in a row that basically feature scientists or doctors talking incorrectly about something. And yeah. always at the end of the scene, either something horrific happens or at the very least they get it wrong. And then we move on and it's still quite compelling. Yeah. I think it's because you give them a pass because the methodology is sound, isn't it? The the, the mm. process, the steps they're taking make complete sense. Yeah. But if the only reason they're getting it wrong is just because it's something that's sort of outside of the completely outside of the box, isn't it? <laughs> the answer is you'd never you'd never expect it. Um, yeah. It's interesting because when the fax arrives with the picture to Doctor Grant, which is coming up in one of the next chapters, they. Mm immediately think maybe it's a fake and they say one of the ways that fakes are so successful is they always show the scientists what they expect to see and this yeah. is probably like the i don't know maybe even the reverse of that yeah um, very true yeah uh, so so we come to the chapter called the shore of the inland sea and we meet dr alan grant uh, who's described as a barrel-chested bearded man of 40 um now i i found because i loved the film when i was little and then i read the book every one of these characters is just massively informed by the film and i actually remember yeah. just deciding to take a conscious decision to discount these descriptions <laughs> just remember them as so, the, so dr grant's always sam neil for me but if you hadn't yeah. seen the film he'd look quite a lot different he would yeah he would be, i imagine him being more like sort of gerard butler is what he's going for here. <laughs> yeah yeah that's what he's after isn't it um, yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, but, you know, Michael Crichton does such short descriptions, you know, unless there's something that you really need to know about the character. Yeah. He just leaves them for you to make up in your brain. Yeah, which is actually quite nice. That means that all of the characters look like the people they look like. Yeah, definitely. But that does mean that when you have a character who was, like, rolled into a different character for the film, I just don't know what they look like. Like Ed Regis. (laughs) Yeah, Because he's not in the film, and Marty Gutierrez as well. I'm like, I... I don't know. I don't know what what other successful actor from the sort of early mid nineties shall yeah. I paste their face on here? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Stephen Baldwin. There you go. Yeah. Ed Regis looks like Stephen Baldwin. <laughs> I'm trying to think of who I th- imagine Ed Regis to be. I think because one the only description of him is he's got ginger hair really and a Mets baseball cap. Um, he strikes me of a cross between like the dude out of Simply Red, Mick Hucknall, <laughs> <laughs> but like a more American Yankee version of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, in my head, I now have, like, (laughs) I'm now imagining, um, uh, do you ever watch Modern Family? Uh, Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, Mitchell out of Modern Family, the, <laughs> yeah. the ginger lawyer. Yeah, that's cool actually. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's quite pleasing. Yeah, but that is quite that is that is true because Michael Crichton's so brief with descriptions of characters. You can almost just cast them yourselves, can't you? Um, yeah. Which some yeah. people I think would probably say is a drawback and a bit of a failing. But uh, the, the, mm. I don't. It's never really been much of a problem for me, but um, yeah, yeah. I suppose it is a little. No, I, yeah, I agree with that. But yeah, again, you know, he's. A, I think I'm always a fan of uh, of effective but spare writing, yeah. Instead of lots and lots of words. So yeah, um, we also meet Ellie Sattler, who's a, a paleobotanist. It turns out, um, yeah. so sort of the uh, plant version of a paleontologist who studies dinosaurs. Um, uh, How do you get into that, really? At what point yeah. in your education do you go, I do like plants, but they're a bit too easy to study when they're still around. <laughs> yeah. I, I sort of want to find fossilised plants. Plants yeah. that have literally turned to stone by a geological miracle and, and try and work out how they worked. Yeah, I'm going to do that, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I love the character of Ellie Sattler because she's such sort of a... And I, I love having a book like this, which is predominantly a very sort of masculine world of science and paleontology. Both those fields are traditionally extremely masculine and yeah. um, male-dominated. And to have a good sort of strong female character in there is... It never really feels like it's just sort of a, a nod to just proving that the book isn't sexist. But um, it feels right. But it, I'm really glad there's someone like that in there anyway. Um, yeah, very much. It's, it's not as kind of... As... Uh, surprisingly, radically, really, uh, excitingly feminist as the the film is, because the film has this whole thread running through it where, you know, the dinosaurs turn out to be girls mm. and, you know, um, dinosaurs eat man, woman inherits the earth and all that. Mm. Um, but I do quite like this character. And I like that it's brought out more a little bit later on where when Gennaro first meets Ellie Sattler, mm. yeah. he's literally the first words out of his mouth are, you're a woman. <laughs> and they might they might as well be, I'm a sexist tool because <laughs> it just nails his entire character, and I do like that. Like that, uh, Michael Crichton went there because I think that's actually quite an important. That is quite an important assumption to kind of put under the microscope and show for the idiocy that it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler they're on this dig site in uh, in the Badlands in America, where you can find a you know um, a lot of uh, skeletons of you know dead dinosaurs and all that stuff um and he's working on this site and they get a visit from this guy from the epa so uh, the american environment protection agency um who's got concerns about something called the hammond foundation and this is a charitable organization it turns out set up by this guy called john hammond who happens to run ingen um or is, i think he's the director of it or something like that anyway um yeah. and there are a couple of things that this guy from the EPA is piecing together. They, it turns out the reason they, they're they interested in him is because they're becoming increasingly concerned about these sort of genetic engineering companies that are setting up outside of the US to avoid any regulation and basically just doing whatever the hell they want. And he gives mm. us an example of another corporation called Biosyn. Great name for an evil genetic <laughs> <Yeah>. corporation. <laughs> so I wonder if they're the good guys or the bad guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, you have to but, introduce them when you biosyn, but quite nice biosyn yeah. suggested slogan, not as bad as we sound. Yeah, I think it'd be biosyn, a family company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your family. Yeah, if you're in any doubt about 
bios in um their their introduction is they uh they went to chile and released a modified rabies virus uh just to see if uh if it worked uh, on the population so uh, <laughs> not the most uh is it as if the name of the organisation wasn't a good enough tip-off, then they go and do something as recklessly fucking stupid. And, you know, and I say this from a position of having now 25 extra years of seeing exactly what rampantly and inappropriate and dangerous things corporations will do if they can get away with it. Mm. That This still comes off as unbelievably cartoonish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but for, for, for InGen's point of view, the, the reason the EPA is looking at them specifically... Um, Hammond seems to have... He's bought himself an island near Costa Rica. He's bought loads of these really powerful computers and set up effect, what's effectively sort of a... Um, like a big... Uh, what is it? Oh, I've made a note here. Uh, yeah, he set up all these like genetic sequences and things that can you know help you with your genetic engineering in a foreign country where there's no regulation. Um, he's also been... A strange pattern of funding dinosaur digs just in the northern hemisphere and uh buying up a load of amber it's loads of weird things that he's trying to sort of make head head a tail of this epa guy at a certain point you almost wish that it had been some sort of performance art project like just (laughs) just designed to teach the government the pointlessness of trying to find meaning in the actions of its citizens yeah why have you bought all the amber well i don't know and this marshmallow mountain that you made outside of utah i really don't understand that at all well it's all part of the plan isn't it yeah why have you dug an enormous trench full of baked beans all the way from washington to seattle again because who can say you know it becomes this philosophical but it doesn't i I, you know and i'm sad that it didn't go that way Yeah, so um, the, the reason that this EPA guy is speaking to Grant in relation to this is that um, Hammond has funded Dr. Grant's digs for a while. Um, so this one that they're doing at the moment is uh, is part funded by Hammond, and also he was Grant was paid a consultancy fee um, by Ingen a while back. It turns out because they were asking about how to look after baby dinosaurs, and this is his sort of expert field. Um, yeah. is, is is that so this guy Gennaro this lawyer kept ringing him up like pretty, it seems like pretty much every night in the early hours asking questions like you know what would a baby hadrosaur eat and how should you create a habitat for it and Grant's like this is like he, he, he Grant's like uh, thinks it's really weird like he admires the guy's enthusiasm but thinks that even even as a dinosaur nut himself it feels a bit over the top <laughs> I do like that. When it, when even the geek of the world about this particular topic is like, all right, steady on. It's two in the morning. But, you know, the, the question that occurs to me there is, what's happening on the other end of that phone line that he needs to know right now what baby hadrosaurs eat? What has one been born by surprise? Like, oh, we weren't expecting that egg to crack open quite so soon. And now it's looking at me with its big, sad hadrosaur eyes. And yeah. I, all I've got here, if, quite frankly, is 20 Rothmans and a Mars bar. And I don't know what to do. Well, you know what? I think there could actually have been an element of that in a strange way because later on, we're jumping ahead a bit here, but when they're finding out how they have created these dinosaurs, a lot of the time they sort of create them, stick them in eggs without really... They've got some DNA strand. They don't really know what it is, but they start growing (laughs) it. And then when it hatches, they've they've made a best guess, but then they find out what it is. So it could have been the case where like this egg's hatched and they've gone... 
oh shit, it's a baby had resort. <laughs> Get Grant on the line. We've no idea what the fuck to do with it. <laughs> Actually, that's you could you could say that's a fairly big plot hole, couldn't you? Just like because they must have just imagine the setup that you'd have to make in order for that whatever random dinosaur baby to be well catered for. Like yeah. you know, you've got everything from like a like a, a, an anaesthetized baby goat, yeah, all the way down to a pipette full of warm dog's milk, and <laughs> you just sort of which one does he need? Which one? Look at him. Does he does he look like he needs a bit of milk? Does he yeah. need a few bit bit of grass? Would that help at all? Yeah. I've, I've got a steak. You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, later on they say that they they've got a these dinosaurs when they hatch they've got a survival rate of 0.4% which basically means less than one in every 200 survive and I suppose when we look at it like this that's a pretty good explanation as to why because we've just not got the first idea what to do once once they're born I I still think it's a missed opportunity to play it for laughs Okay. Um, so yeah, so there's that. So he got paid a big fee for answering all these questions about how to look after dinosaurs, and he thinks it's it was a bit strange, but didn't really think much more of it. Um, no, but even more than that, he fired the client. Yeah, he's just like at a certain point, he was like, "This is getting fucking ridiculous. Yeah. We're done. We're out. Sorry, mate. Twelve yeah. and a half grand is what it's going to be worth." Yeah, yeah. So that was that. Um, the EPA guy leaves, and as he goes. This uh, this fact of the dinosaur comes through, so the fact of that lizard from um, over in Costa Rica, and they yeah. immediately, rec- I mean, Grant and, and Ellie Sadler immediately recognise that it's this. Uh, it's called a oh god, here we go, a Procompsognathus. Can I say it's a that has been that, that has been that has been coming the whole time that we've been doing this book so far all, all 45 minutes of it and that you you dealt with that manfully can i say <laughs> i'm gonna try I, I should have really done it let's just do pro and i work out to actually say it uh pronunciation oh my god i got it right yes pro comp sognathus is how you, you have earned it. yourself a strut around <clears throat> the room so uh, they, they immediately recognize that it's this extinct dinosaur called a pro comp sognathus Thank you. Um, yeah, oh, yes. We, the crowd went wild. Which we will here to refer to as Cumpy for short. For short. Um, Cumpy. All but, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but they, they think this is... They're looking at it, they're saying... That obviously, the uh, Costa Ricans are saying, we've found this thing. What is it? And they recognise it as a Procompsognathus. And... They think it's. They think, oh, it must be a new sort of a rediscovery of an extinct, previously thought extinct animal, which has happened before. But it's really strange with this one because not only is it a dinosaur, it's a dinosaur from the Triassic period, which is like the early part of dinosaurs. So you've got the Cretaceous and then the Jurassic further back, and then the Triassic even further back. So the fact that it's been it's stuck around for like. I think they say 220 million years, um, suggests it's a very unusual find. <laughs> that would be um, quite a trick, wouldn't it? Yeah. Although rather coolly, apparently sharks and alligators are from around that time as well. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I, I, I do like that fact. And yeah, and yeah. Sharks. sharks obviously for the win. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so they're just working out what to do with this new information when John Hammond actually calls them. And it's a complete, it's a proper bolt from the blue. This this just like multi millionaire funder of their dig just rings up, and basically within a few 
within a minute it's like yeah so i've got this island which i've been uh creating a sunk this kind of zoo at and uh, i want you to come to it so uh yeah come to the island like tomorrow like so you come into the island tomorrow and like th- as he's <laughs> saying it they're saying oh well we've got a lot on and uh, and he's just hammond's just sort of rose over him he's just like yeah, yeah yeah well so this is why you really have got to come to the island so i so said we'll pick you up so you've got to be at chotto for this time <laughs> it's like um Okay. Bring your passports. Like, yeah, bring your passports. And he just drops in that like, he's going to sort of give them enough money basically to fund the next three years of digs or something like that. Yeah, so they're like, yeah. it's just too good an offer it, to turn down. It's the casual arrogance of the extraordinarily wealthy, isn't it? Yeah. Of course you're going to do what I'm telling you to do. I'm willing to pay you a really ridiculous amount of money for you to do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's our and that's first. Actually, that is an interesting. Sorry to interrupt. Sorry. No, you go on. That's an interesting point, actually, that I think is really... And becomes more and more pronounced as the book goes on with um, Hammond and the difference between Richard Attenborough as John Hammond, smiley, cuddly, happy-go-lucky, literally went on to play Father Christmas in a film (laughs) the year after this. Yeah. And John Hammond in this, who's much more of a kind of self-important... He's still quite short, but he's this kind of like prima donna almost yeah. businessman yeah who can't cope with not getting his own way yeah he really is and um, there's much more the book john hammond's there's much more of this sort of ultra capitalist megalomaniac about him isn't there um, yeah yeah and it's and he says uh, later on the park is predominantly about you know, making money he wants to do something that no one's ever seen before and go down in history as this amazing sort of I don't know, forward-thinking leader of business, Um, but he also wants to make a hell of a lot of money out of it. Um, Whereas, I mean, there is a part of this to him as well, like the grandfatherly wanting sort of to bring wonder to children element as well, but it's far more pronounced when Richard Attenborough is playing him in the film version. There's much more of that and much less of the sort of capitalist egomaniac about him. Yeah, I think you'd struggle to have got Richard Attenborough at that point in his career to play a kind of cold-hearted capitalist bastard, wouldn't <laughs> yeah. you? You would have been, you would have struggled. Yeah, because I think in, in the film, John Hammond is like he's this kindly old grandfather who just wanted to put on a nice, sort of fascinating show for the children who can't quite understand that it's all how it's all getting out of hand. Whereas it seems that this the Hammond in the book, when he's sort of you know, riding roughshod over the problems that the park's had and trying to minimise them. He knows full well that this place isn't the safe, comfortable area of wonder that he's making out, but he just thinks it's all going to... All the bumps will just, just get smoothed out in the end if he can just get it get it basically up and running yeah, at all yeah. costs. Yeah. Um, okay, so we move on to a chapter called Cowain, Swain and Ross. Uh, this is this massive sort of... I don't know, like lawyer, stroke insurance firm, uh, investment bank. I think. I think I mean, with be. a name like that, Cowain, Swain, and Ross, it sounds yeah. like a spoof country music group, doesn't it? Cowain, <laughs> yeah. Cowain. Yeah. What's that? That's a like. All you need there is a double barrel, like like Bobby Joe Cowain. Yeah, and that's that's that. My friend is a spin-off country music act way to happen. Yeah, <laughs> slash firm of New York lawyers, but whatever. Yeah, so this firm of New York lawyers is um, it's basically our first introduction to this character called Donald Gennaro, who's this. He basically represents the big business that's that's backing uh, John Hammond, 
and his invest the investors are basically getting increasingly worried about the safety of this park which is being created and about whether John Hammond who's this sort of born showman and uh, great at drumming up investments and obviously a bit of a visionary but whether he's really overreached himself here and whether this investment is actually ever going to work out yeah. um, and the plan is basically the uh, the investors and the the, 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 the the firm is going to send Gennaro to the island basically to do his own sort of one man safety assessment <laughs> and decide whether or not it's actually fit for purpose and if not they're basically going to shut the whole thing down Pull yeah, all the funding. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 I like this idea. I like the idea that a really, really, really ridiculously, like, well-paid and intelligent law firm, they wouldn't hire anybody to go and do a do a safety assessment. No, yeah. no, no. Don't get anybody in who's a pro. Just send one of your lads down there. Yeah. What's he going to do? Look at it and be yeah. Well, fences were all standing up. Um, uh, roads were all quite intact. Saw a dinosaur in the distance. Yeah, it's all right with me. Like. Yeah. This is just unbelievably slapdash. It, it is a strange collection that they have to assess it. I mean, they, they basically end up with the insurance guy, Gennaro, um, two, effectively two dinosaur experts, the paleontologist and a paleobotanist, uh, a mathematician interested in chaos theory. Uh, and that <laughs> seems to be pretty much the group that will decide on the safety of the park. Um, it is an unusual sort of knock together group really yeah, <laughs> i'm not yeah, to, to be much. honest as a story i'm not sure how interesting it would have been if like a guy who's massively into structural engineering turned up as well <laughs> but, <laughs> that uh, wouldn't have been a bad idea would it but no like it's yeah. far more likely that john hammond would have gone and found some sort of literature professor or something yeah and tell me about the narrative structure of this park and whether or not it'll work <laughs> yeah yeah so i suppose the, the the point of the trip to assess this is maybe they've already sent out they've obviously when we see the park later the terms of the technology and the uh the sort of the the fences and the uh, infrastructure in place it's all top of the range and mm. sound but it's whether there's anything underlying it that's a problem and that's mm. what that's why they send the people who know a load about dinosaurs and this bloke who's got these wacky ideas about big systems how they inerr- inherently are going to fail yeah it's other ways i suppose of testing a system that looks very strong from the outside yeah. um but there have been a few things like this construction worker dying and these appearances of animals on the coast of costa rica which suggest all is not well yeah. um so we go on to plans uh, Grant gets sent this uh, brochure through about about uh, the park, and it's got it's basically like it's not a proper promo material because they haven't made it yet. It's basically blueprints of the island, and you can see like blueprints of this lodge and visitor center, and a load of roads and a load of electric fences. Again, a few more clues as to what's actually going on here. It just looks like a giant zoo. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I like the idea of of the uh, the designer being hired to make that brochure and being like, yeah, it's a park, but we can't tell you what's in it. Yeah. Um, it's really awesome though, because can you make it look awesome without using any of the things in it that are awesome that we can't tell you about? Would you mean no? <laughs> Would you mean fuck off out of here? I've got real work to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's this there's this brief period where they go to a raptor dig as well um, on their site. 
they're they're digging up a skeleton of a velociraptor and this Mm. just serves to give us our first introduction to this creature that we're going to meet later on um and you know there's the skeleton with this massive front claw um it's roughly the size of a leopard and it's quite interesting because a lot of the stuff that they talk about about the animal here it's all paleontology so it's 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 all very limited and just basically best guesses from the skeleton that they've got in front of them mm. um which is which mm-hmm. is quite quite interesting again it's quite good as a juxtaposition for later on when they actually can see the dinosaurs mm-hmm. um uh moving on to uh oh actually just while we're still on that do you remember in the film version there's a this is a sort of important and tailly scene, isn't it? And they have Alan Grant at the dig and they see the, the dinosaur and all that, all the bones. Yeah, yeah. And there's this little annoying kid who comes up and says it's not scary. <laughs> and Grant, like, scares the shit out of him, basically. Yeah. Um, there's this theory going around the internet that that little fat kid grows up to become the lead guy in Jurassic World. <laughs> Which is, it's such a jump and it's such a fan theory. But uh, you know. oh, jeez, <laughs> fan theories. Matt. Yeah, you got my word. <laughs> anyway, uh, we move on to the next chapter, which is called Hammond. So we get an int- a, a further introduction to John Hammond, who's the guy who runs the park. John Hammond, friend of the common man. Yeah, yeah, man <laughs> of the people, John Hammond. <laughs> John Hammond, man of the people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so Gennaro gets on the on the plane uh, with Hammond. Uh, this this is quite nice because Gennaro just sort of remembers the sort of how they've got to this point and how he was sort of the guy who was employed to help Hammond get his investment to set this park up. And how he, it's just more of, of this sort of Hammond the showman, isn't it? How he yeah. used to tour these boardrooms with this little genetically modified baby elephant, um, yeah. which managed to sort of pull in investment. And he would he would suggest uh, like things that weren't actually possible, but were hinted at without actually lying to them. He would suggest yeah. more than he could do to pull in investment, and that's a quite yeah. an important part of this guy's character. The guy who makes this park. Um, and also the the scale of the thing. How this is maybe an, another warning, early warning sign here. The original plan was to create twelve dinosaurs and stick them mm. in a zoo. Yeah. And when Gennaro asks how that's gone, uh, Hammond says, "Oh yeah, yeah, we've now got two hundred and thirty-eight specimens, fifteen different species." Yeah. It's like this just exploded in um, sort of yeah, ambition, just, hasn't it? Fuck it, let's keep building. And yeah. <laughs> say like of course that was going to happen though wasn't it like when they got into this presumably when they're turning out viable embryos and eggs are hatching and so on Mm. like at a certain point they're going to be like this is too cool to stop quick buy a bigger island yeah yeah more 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 and he's like Hammond is obviously um thrilled about it he's saying you know they've got herds of them and and it, it is like you can imagine how exciting it would be to sort of go from a couple of the finally managing to do it clone a dinosaur and suddenly <clears throat> manage to do it quickly enough that you can create whole herds and it turns out later on we find out that the the sort of the time to, the time to reach maturity is surprisingly short it's sort of three or four years which yeah. may well be actually just some kind of genetic part of the the way they've created them they've created them so they age quickly but yeah. they've uh, they've managed to do that yeah. um so they've got whole herds wandering around this island mm. um and Hammond again does a good job of 
really minimising or glossing over the problems they've had. There have been three deaths. He he tells the same lie that Ed Regis told at the hospital, saying, oh, yeah, this this construction worker died in some accident where something reversed over him. So we yeah. we as a reader immediately know he is he's massively playing down any of the issues they've had here. He is one shifty motherfucker, isn't he, in this? <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know, you, again, it's route one. He's really good at sketching characters and then telling you whether you're supposed to care about them or not is Michael Crichton. You know, we've had Biosyn clues in the name. Uh, and now, now, John, nothing to see here, Hammond. The face of compassionate uh, capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next chapter is called Chotto, which is where uh, Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler are picked up on the plane. Very, very short. Um, it's basically the moment where Ellie and Grant, uh, Ellie and Alan meet and immediately dislike Gennaro. <laughs> uh, it's this classic <laughs> bit which you said where he just says, you're a woman. And she says, yeah, afraid so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that bit. I, I just, I love that bit so much. Because her thing, her thing isn't, you know, she doesn't kind of stomp her feet and sort of get into like, sisters are doing it for themselves. She's just much, <laughs> much, much more empowered than that and is like, Yes. <laughs> what of it? Yeah. Brilliant. So, again, these are really... I mean, it seems so quick as to be just like, oh, yeah, this is just a, a just moving a piece onto a plane so we can get them there. But, it's again, it's just another example of just economic character building, isn't it? This very mm. short exchange sells an awful lot about Gennaro and about Ali and about Alan Grant all at, yeah. all at the same time. Just this, this yeah, little yeah. exchange. Yeah. Um, the next chapter, you're speaking about Biosyn. We get to meet them. Target of opportunity. It's the Biosyn boardroom. Imagine the parties they must have. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Lewis Dogson is there, who's this uh, Biosyn... I think, is he... What is he? Is he a technician, a doctor, a, a manager? I'm not really sure. It says he's in reverse engineering, which is to say industrial espionage. Yeah. And I, I actually... I, his, his name is even worse than Dogson. Which would be pretty bad, the son of a dog. No, no, no. It's Dodgson. Yeah. Like, like he's basically he's got four fifths of the word dodgy in his surname. <laughs> how much? How much clearer can Michael Crichton make it at this point? <laughs> yeah. Losing the name. Yeah, we need to decide here what to call him because the correct way to call him, reading it off the page, is you're right, Dodgson. Yeah. But I always take it from the film where Nedry meets him. And he yeah. goes, Dogson, Dogson, we've got Dogson here. <laughs> but that is could... true, and we should never we should never talk across Wayne Knight. That man is legit. <laughs> yeah. Although that could be part of the joke, I suppose, in the film, that he just gets his name wrong because he's that lax about the plan. Um, he's not even listened to what the guy's name's actually called. But anyway, um, I'll just... I'll try. I'll just. I don't know. I'll just. I'll probably call it for the purposes of this. I'll call him Dodgson. No, I'm going to call right. him Dogson. Call him. Call him. Do- call him Dogson because he is a son of a bitch. Dogson of a dog. Yeah. Yeah. A- so Dogson. A- <laughs> um. So Dogson basically has this massive money making opportunity here because um he has discovered through his sources that InGen are cloning and have successfully begun to clone dinosaurs. And he basically lays it out in front of the Biosyn board members here, saying just how lucrative this is going to be for this rival company. 
They yeah. can create dinosaurs. They can make a fortune from the dinosaur park. They can then create genetically modified mini dinosaurs as pets and sell them food that, you know, only in-gen food can be fed to these pets. And that's the moment where one of the board members is like, oh my God, <laughs> so much money. <laughs> <laughs> you can, I, I really like this because it's incredibly prescient, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's like, when I first read this, which was whatever, sort of late 90s, I wasn't really conscious of, of, of companies taking this kind of approach to things. So this was like, my God, he's right. Like, yeah. They've created Frankenstein's monster. But actually, this is exactly what companies like Apple and Google and Amazon do, is they, they, they're not just interested in you being on one product. They want you being on one product to be locking you into a whole ecosystem yeah. of yeah. their stuff. And it makes, makes good capitalist sense. But I think if we've learned nothing else from Jurassic Park, it is this ecosystem-based financial uh, economics for companies can lead to dinosaurs eating your face. <laughs> yeah. Didn't think about that, did you, Steve Jobs? Hey, didn't think about that. Yeah. So Lewis Dogson has a solution, and it is he has managed to cultivate a relationship with a disgruntled employee, basically with a disgruntled yeah. civil servant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's got this guy, he says, who um, is well placed in the InGen organization to steal a few embryos. So um, they can, so Biosyn can catch up, and he just needs the approval of the board to set the wheels in motion. And they all sort of rather shiftily give him the approval without going on the record. Yeah, yeah I just love. I just need a sense of what's in the room, and I, whatever the sign language is for, I'm a bastard who's not willing to live up to his his commitments. But yes, I'd like to be much richer than I currently am. Please, thanks. <laughs> whatever the sign language is for that, they all do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we immediately move on to airport, which is Dogson meeting this unknown man at the moment, um, who's talking about how he can get hold of these embryos. Um, there's a short window of opportunity while this, uh, while these people are visiting the island. It seems um, that'll give him the chance to get in and out quickly. Uh, the plan is to nick, steal these embryos, take them to the dock, s- stick them on a boat, uh, and get them away. He's going to get paid. Basically, three quarters of a million pounds now, and three or dollars now, and three quarters of a million once the embryos have arrived, and they're going to uh, do it by smuggling them out at the, in the bottom of a can of shaving foam. <laughs> it's interesting. It's funny because in the book, it's a can of Gillette, and obviously mm. they didn't come to whatever agreement Gillette with the filmmakers because it's a different product um, in the in the film. Um, yeah. Absolutely pointless aside, but I thought I'd mention it. Um, We're oh, of our generation, Matt, where we notice the uh, the product placement and the differences yeah, therein. <laughs> yeah, the um, actually speaking of that scene in the film, it's it's actually in a restaurant, isn't it? In the film, in this uh, in this little sort of I don't know outdoory place in what seems to be Costa Rica, and um, when they try out the shaving foam, he sprays it on his hand, and then he sticks it on a on a little apple cake or something. Like ne- on the table next to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I always I like thought the, the poor bastard who ate that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh look, free pie! I'll have some of this. Um, oh, I instantly regret this decision. <laughs> With delicious whipped cream. Oh god! Oh no! It's in my mouth and down my throat. Oh no! 
Yeah. Anyway, so this is quite interesting because these last couple of chapters have set us up a little sort of plot within a plot now. The whole thrust of the book so far has been, oh my goodness, there are dinosaurs being created. When are we going to meet them? And is anyone going to discover that it's actually happening? Now we're moving to the stage where people are about to find out. And there's another little plot developing where, you know, there's a bit of sort of industrial espionage going on at the same time. Yeah. Um, We move on to most people's favourite character, Malcolm. Uh, this is a oh, Ian Malcolm, yeah, a mathematician who joins the group on the plane. So Gennaro and Grant, etc., on there. Um, he's basically the the doom monger of this group. He is a, a an expert in what's called chaos theory. It's put simply, it's the belief that large complex systems are inherently unstable. So um, you know, if you create something, if you if basically if, if you're too ambitious about controlling something it'll inevitably end up going out of control. Mm. That's the best way I can describe it. It's probably a bit more complicated, yeah. but that, 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 that's the cliff notes. I, I don't know. I think it can pretty effectively be summed up with the sentence, if you do complicated shit, shit gets complicated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's called like non-linear equations he talks about. So um, uh, the best example that he gives is weather. So, you know, scientists can predict... Scientists can predict things like physicists about what you need to do to launch a rocket for example and the same variables will, will, will always play out the same way um, yeah. but something like weather it's such a complex system that even even the same data entered at the same times eventually creates very different results um, actually the better example he gives is the pool table on a uh, pool table so you you hit the ball on a pool table and you mm. can predict where it's going to go Mm. But um, you can't predict it after a few seconds because things like tiny imperfections on the table and the type of you know on on the on the actual pool ball and other things mean that suddenly it all adds up to creating very different results. So you can't yeah. you can never predict it. It's basically all about unpredictability, isn't it? It is. And I don't know about you, but this is a really I still find myself quoting confidently science, which it turns out that I read somewhere in a Michael Crichton novel. <laughs> as, as though I read it in a newspaper because it sounds exactly the same and it makes such a convincing narrative out of it as well yeah. and I just I really love that and I kind of don't want to know whether chaos theory has changed at all in the last 25 years because that involves <laughs> hard work and this made it so easy yeah so I'm the worst scientist in the universe but I am genuinely fascinated by this stuff and I think it's a real strength of the book that it makes the science as interesting as the dinosaurs yeah to me at least I think this is why Malcolm is so popular because it is almost, I think this is almost like, more than any other character in the book, this is sort of Michael Crichton in the book because he's very much like Malcolm insofar as, Malcolm's described as this mathematician, this breed of mathematician that is obviously very into his theory but has the ability to communicate it very clearly and uh, interestingly. So yeah. it's a sort of rock star mathematician. It can make it sound cool and interesting, even though it's effectively still science and mathematics. And Michael Crichton is all about that. That's what he does so well, isn't it? He turns things like nonlinear equations into something that is compelling reading. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which isn't easy. Now, now, with the phrase rock star mathematician, <laughs> you have made me draw the obvious comparison here. And I think I might have ruined the character of Ian Malcolm forever in my own brain. 
because I'm now imagining him instead of instead of being Jeff Goldblum and not even instead of being the very stereotypical I think we need to talk about science guy. I'm now imagining him with a very soft Mancunian accent, which is always <laughs> rising at the ends. I'm imagining Professor Brian Cox, and now my head is broken. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, uh, I love that. The, the the greatest way to sum up Malcolm's character is um, John, uh, like from John Hammond's point of view, and he describes Malcolm as having a deplorable excess of personality. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which, to be fair, is something that nobody can accuse brian cox of having so i mean so yeah hopefully that could be by way of antidote to that (laughs) (laughs) um yeah the thing is brian cox he's all about the sort of wide-eyed wonder at the world isn't he and he's so much more cynical malcolm yeah that's true i think that's why i respond to him better as well do you know i've already got the wonder going on i want somebody to tell me why it's gonna go wrong (laughs) yeah because if brian cox was along for the ride here he'd just be all like Wow, dinosaurs! Like, oh, <laughs> this is incredible. <laughs> and the only thing you can do with a character like that is have him be eaten first, isn't it? Like, that's the character that you send out of the car to get a closer look at a T Rex, yeah. just before he gets bitten in half by one. You know. <laughs> well, Malcolm takes one look at this uh, theme by uh, zoo made of, you know, to create dinosaurs as exhibits. And describes it as an accident waiting to happen. So, not particularly enthusiastic about this trip. <laughs> but you can imagine that line being delivered in a Brian Cox voice, which I'm not going to attempt because only one of us is from Lancashire. But, <laughs> but just that sort of, it's an accident waiting to happen. <laughs> yeah, it does work really well, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, we move on to Isla Nublar. Um, which is the uh, the name of the island where Jurassic Park is, is, has been set up. Um, they basically go from a plane to a helicopter here. They pick up this guy called Dennis Nedry, um, who is the computer technician who's designed the whole sort of systems around the park. Um, just happened to have been waiting around near an airport. Um, so, yeah, so they fly um, over. Actually, they, as they make their way to the island, they fly over uh, Cabo Blanco, which is the beach which that guy was on where his daughter got bitten by the lizard, um, uh, which is a nice just little reminder. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's this sort of hair-raising descent onto the island because they got to land really quickly because of the wind shear, apparently. Um, and it's like, it doesn't look like the safest way to get to an island, but they make it. <laughs> um, and Ed Regis, who we've met before, um, opens up the, uh, this, the side of the you know, helicopter and says, you know, welcome to Isla Nublar. And they look into the distance and they get their first glimpse of a dinosaur. (gasps) (laughs) 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 And the strings swell. Oh, yeah. Can I say at this point, um, such was my excitement about reading this book, uh, I, before I started it, went and found the Jurassic Park original score. (laughs) Yes! Yes, you did, <laughs> and stuck it on the i on the on the, the iPod. So I had Glorious. it constantly playing as I was reading this, and in perfect timing, this was when the strings came in, and it was like, oh my goodness, this is a moment. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do move in herds. I was thinking, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> you, and, and then and then and then a soft Mancunian voice pipes up from the back of the car. You did it. You crazy son of a bitch. You did it. (laughs) 
Right, so we move on to a chapter, a chapter called Welcome. There are, he likes a lot of sharp, uh, short chapters, as you may have recognised, uh, Michael yeah. Cryan. Uh, so we're jumping quite quickly through it. Um, so we get the first impressions of the dinosaurs, basically. The first impressions of the group about the dinosaurs. And uh, Ellie Sattler's is just all like wonder, basically. Mm. Grant's is sort of a, a mixture of complete waste. I mean, he starts laughing like a child, doesn't he? It's really yeah. nicely described this. It really yeah. put me in his head. It's like, it is just exactly how you'd feel if you were like, spent, dedicated your life to studying these creatures and suddenly you've seen one for the first time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And <laughs> I love Gennaro's reaction. He basically, he basically just sees pound signs, doesn't he? <laughs> he's like, we're going to make a fortune. Um, but he's also thinking, shit, is it safe? He's a, he's yeah. Mr. Practical, isn't he? And hard-headed businessman yeah. here. Yeah, And he's not, for saying that he did get the archetypal asshole introduction, of just assuming that Sattler was a man. Yeah. Um, he's not nearly as kind of weaselly as he is in, in, the, t- in, the, in the, the film. Yeah, because in the film he is probably kind of like we're going to make a fortune with this place. People will yeah. pay all of this money, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, and then this guy's just a lot more like, oh man, I really hope it's safe because I really want to get rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am um, actually I, I quite like Gennaro, um, in spite of his sort of stuffy businessman and outrageously apparently sexiest guy. Um, <laughs> there is, I think it. Yeah, I did, for some reason, I did find myself quite rooting for him as it goes along. Um, and it might be because he's so different to the to the film version of him. But mm. um, but anyway, we'll, we'll find out more as we go with him. Uh, we see Malcolm's third iteration, so we're slowly beginning to get a grasp of what this is all about, I suppose, these uh, little squiggly lines. Um, mm. But as we continue to move forward, it's probably one that was worth waiting to fully explore as we get further into... Malcolm explaining his own theory, um, mm. but anyway, the third iteration is there. I like how they mm. just keep popping up as we go along, almost mm. like little, little warnings from a mathematician as we yeah. carry on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the whole thing could be called "I Told You So." The Ian Malcolm story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the the next chapter, the final chapter we're going to look at for this week, is actually called Jurassic Park. Now this is the this is the chapter where I used to begin the book when I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> so all of this up to this point was just prologue where nobody was getting eaten, therefore as dull as could be. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I already know there's a park. Like, let's skip that bit. Let's just get them there. So this is what I used to start <laughs> reading from when I was a child. Brilliant. But uh, anyway, <laughs> so. Um, Grant's thinking about sort of they're basically talking about what this is going to mean the existence of dinosaurs for his field for paleontologists he basically says it's going to be the end of us um but he's he's also quite excited about that you know these old questions like things he he's had this part of his career has been trying to answer this question were they warm or cold-blooded these animals and he has successfully argued that they were warm-blooded but mm. now they're not going to need any more guesswork. They're just going to be able to go up, you know, look under the dinosaur's fingernails and look at the teeth and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's yeah. um, it's all, it's just, this just changes everything and he's very aware of that straight away. Yeah, yeah. Um, I quite like this. This is really, this is a great quote from Malcolm um, because uh, Malcolm's like, oh, you, you don't sound particularly, like, he says to Grant, you don't sound particularly surprised or upset about 
the fact that you know paleontology as you know it's coming to an end and uh grant basically says well you know we all sort of knew something like this was coming along he said every everybody knew it was coming just not so soon and yeah. uh malcolm sort of laughs and says that's just the story of the human race yeah. everyone knows it's yeah. coming not so soon and yeah. it's just so true you know you could every uh like ruler of a fallen empire would say yeah. that yeah on, on a tiny level every, you go to any you know hospital corridor in the world and you'll find every almost every person in there saying the same thing you know everyone yeah. knows it's coming just not so soon yeah and that, yeah. that's just Very a classic much. line i think yeah um yeah, there's a lot of classic lines given to Malcolm in this, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. So they uh, they can they, they continue this early part of their tour of the uh, of the first bit of the island. They get taken to the lodge where they're going to be staying, and there's this massive swimming pool there. And Ed Regis is saying Ed Regis is basically the tour guide at the moment, saying that these are all genuinely sort of this species of Jurassic fern which they've brought back yeah. as well. They've basically yeah. extended the genetic engineering to bring back the original plants as well, which I suppose yeah. makes sense given the right habitat. Yeah. And Ellie takes one look at these ferns and thinks, yeah, it's amazing that they've brought them back, but obviously they've no idea how deadly they are because if a child was to sort of touch one of those, they'd get very yeah. sick and probably die, and it's yeah. right next to the pool. It's just another warning sign, isn't it? That the people don't seem to know what they're doing. I like that she here. doesn't say anything about that. That she's supposed to be like here on a safety tour of a new resort, which is supposed to open quite soon, and she sees this horrifying possibility for children to die, and just mutters something about it to Alan under her breath instead of going, <laughs> "Do you realise how stupid you are? Because you're really all quite stupid." Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah. I don't know if you're just thinking, save it for the report. <laughs> yeah, the yeah, save it. Once they've given me the cheque, I'll tell them all the truth. <laughs> so, save it for the TripAdvisor review at the end. Oh, can you imagine? <laughs> Do not one, touch the ferns. <laughs> one star. Ferns killed children. Not joking. <laughs> Pros, beautiful ferns. Cons, deadly ferns. <laughs> 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 uh, anyway um, so they arrive in the lodge uh, where they dump the stuff they all have got their own room um, there's a <laughs> the, the TV uh, there's a TV in each room and on top there's a little card saying Jurassic TV and uh, there's all these channels listed with all these different like kooky little names for like you know carnivore country and uh, <laughs> there's loads of other ones um, what did you think of this <laughs> Um, yeah, it does seem really quite twee, doesn't it? And it, it takes a special kind of marketing cack-handedness <laughs> to make dinosaurs twee. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be the ultimate channel surf, that though. You're sitting in your room, you know, what's on channel What's on channel three? Triceratops territory. Nah, nothing going on. Sauropod swamp? Nah, nothing going on. Carnivore country? Oh, here we go. The Rex is just about to feed. Maybe switch it <laughs> off when the little kids are in the room, but you know, um, yeah. quite a cool idea. Actually, one of the things that one of the reasons I enjoyed Jurassic World so much, even though it was uh, you know it has its problems, um, like there's this moment where they enter the park and they they go into their room for the day, you know, like sort of dumping their bags off, and it's just that that moment where they walked in. I'm thinking, shit, this is like this is what would have happened if like 
if things had have all gone to plan at Jurassic Park. It's like the vision of this John Hammond being realised like in front of your yeah. eyes. Yeah, um, yeah. I think Jurassic World gets a lot of free goodwill from people who love Jurassic Park because of things like that. It yeah, just has these beats yeah. which, almost without trying, it can create. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's a little aside. Um, so it looks quite nice. They've got the, the the room isn't finished, but you know they've got this this bed with a nice skylight above to give you the feel of sleeping under the stars. But they do notice a couple of um, additions which weren't in the blueprints that have been sent, which include this massive fence all around the lodge and these like retrofitted thick bars on the skylights. <laughs> they've basically turned the lodge into some kind of fortress. And yeah. it suggests that it's just this underlying suggestion that maybe everything isn't quite as safe as they thought originally. I like that they're still, even though clearly somebody in leadership has made the decision to have these things built, they're still, the same people are still towing this line of it's all perfectly great and it's fantastic and nothing will ever go wrong and it's fine. Yeah. You know, instead of being like, we felt the need to encase the dwellings, all of them, in very, very thick steel, all of them. And electrified steel fences, all of them. But it's fine. It's fine. We'll still have everybody come and see things. It's fine. Do you think it's suggesting a flaw of taking an ultra sort of scientific approach to things like this? In that there isn't a problem until until there's a problem, and then once you've solved it, there isn't a problem anymore. Because when you're trying to create a dinosaur, you sort of go through various steps, and you basically get problem, fix it move on, stop, problem, stop, fix it, move on, problem, yeah. stop, fix And that's very much the attitude to the park. You know, um, they create this lodge without any real security. A dinosaur gets out and kills someone. Right, that's a problem. We stick some bars on. Right, it's fixed. There's no way, there's yeah. no reason to say it's not as, yeah, it's more dangerous yeah. than we thought because yeah. we fixed it until the we next problem that problem. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and the sort of ineptitude of corporate responses to that sort of thing where 70% is just about good enough unless it's to do with profits, in which case only 100% will do. Yeah, But you can't do that when you're dealing with things that might kill people. Um, so that that is uh, as far as we're going for this week. And uh, so we've got to the park. We've arrived. We've had the wondrous moment where you see the dinosaurs for the first time. They do and... move in herds, Matt. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, and yeah, but we've also got this sort of sinister undertone, almost like a the odd beat, just or the odd note, which isn't quite right, giving you a clue as to suggest things aren't quite as wonderful and safe as as they're being led to believe here. Yeah, um, which is interesting. Yeah, 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 very much. Well, and they've just found themselves in a lodge which is has now been turned into fortress Nublar. So yeah. it's uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely. Even if you hadn't seen the film, that's foreshadowing with a big foreshadow on it. Yeah. Oh, if you're reading along with us, um, we're going to be reading next week to, by my book, it's, p- it's page 171. It's a chapter called The Main Road, uh, which begins uh, rain drummed loudly on the roof of the land cruiser. So um, if you're reading along with us, read up to there and no further. And, uh, and we shall discuss that part of the book next week. Have you enjoyed the introduction, Dave? I have, definitely. Fantastic. Uh, I mean, I I was never going to have anything other than a good time with this, but it's a nice palate cleanser after after Game of Thrones, which was a lot of fun and also a lot of work. (laughs) This is just dinosaurs, 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 dinosaurs. Like, even though we've only seen two dinosaurs so far, my brain's still going, dinosaurs, dinosaurs. 
<laughs> and it's hard yeah. to be sad when your brain's doing that, really. Do you think it takes a while to get going? Um, yeah, but by design, it builds tension. It's not boring. It's not kind of wasting your time. It's very yeah. carefully building an environment of tension before it unleashes these these beasts. You know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, we we will uh, we will start. We'll take the tour of the park next week. We will. And uh, who knows what happens next? Unless you've seen the film or read the book or you're anyway connected with the massive cultural phenomenon that is Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers, Matt. No spoilers. Yeah. But until then, uh, until enjoy the next uh, part of the book. Grand. Oh, before you go, stay there a second. Don't switch off. Um, if you have some thoughts of your own. On, fancy that on Jurassic Park um, or on the podcast in general please do send us um, your feedback sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com is the email address that's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com or you can get us on Twitter at sharkliveroil and there we are off Dave right sure sure see you later <laughs> brilliant laters <laughs>